Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books, an excellent publication. Joining me today is my regular co-host, Tom Lutz. How are you today, Tom? Well, that was a nice thing you said about Los Angeles Review of Books. I appreciate that. I hear it's a fine publication. Today, we will be talking to author Ron Arias about his new book of short stories, which is coming out this week. The Wetback and Other Stories. I'm very excited about this. We are here in the studio with Ron Arias, who has a new book of short stories coming out later this month. I say new, but some of the stories have been published before. And also the author of the novel, The Road to Tamas and Chale. And several nonfiction books, and also worked at People Magazine as a journalist for many years. So we have lots of things to talk to him about. Hi, Ron. Hi. And lived in my neck of the woods in Connecticut. Absolutely. Beautiful place. Yeah. So tell us about these stories. Uh, Are any of them brand new? Yes. One of them, my favorite, is uh, it's called Awakening. And it's really, uh, I think it's going to be the prologue to a novel that I'm working on now. It begins in London and comes back to Los Angeles. This is the one about the rare book dealer. Yeah. Very interesting Mm -hmm. story because I think a reader is unsure whether... Everything that he thought happened to him actually mm-hmm. happened to him. Exactly. Also, I noticed in this story and several others, your protagonists kind of find their way back to writing or storytelling, wondering if that kind of parallels with your life right now. You're recently left people? Yes. No more deadlines. <laughs> no more deadlines. So now do you feel like you're just free to write what you really want to write? Yes, yes, exactly. A return and, to storytelling? And having uh, kind of... Uh, perfected or tweaked a lot of the old stories. It was a trip for me back to my past and my style of writing back then. This was going back 30, 40 years. Because we should say that the earliest of them were published in 1970? Yeah, back in the 70s. And But I've evolved and I've had other experiences. When you're older, as I am now, I have more... uh, perspective on whatever the scene was, but I didn't change too much. I kept the stories pretty much the way they were in their original. It was just a few tweaks here and there. But Awakening is the beginning of my next work. It's a great story. Just I'll say what it's about just briefly for the listeners. A rare book dealer goes to uh, London. He's really kind of lost his affection and brio for his profession. He's a little bit lost. He goes to London to a bookseller's convention and finds his way through a semi-magical taxi ride to an estate that's selling off all of the books of the person who lived there. And he finds something that is extremely rare and special, and he buys it. And then, I'm not going to say what happens, but it's a great story about Loving books, loving writing, and Mm -hmm. refinding your voice as a storyteller. I will say for the rest of the book, or a good portion of it, the premise is this journal that he finds incredibly, and he reads it on the spot. And that's a book that he has to write himself. And it takes place in the 16th century. And it's in simple 
terms, it's the story of a young orphan from London who finds his way in the New World, specifically what is today uh, Mexico, and then returns after 20 years. That's all I'll say about that, because I'm in the middle of it. <laughs> when you said uh, earlier that it was, Laurie said, uh, it, we're not sure whether things are happening or not. Whenever an author references under the volcano, you know you're in kind of questionable <laughs> ground about reality, right? Right. <laughs> yes. Magic, there's a lot of gentle magic, I mm -hmm. would say, in the stories. It's not kind of a hit-you-over-the-head thing. At times, you're not sure what's real and what's magical, and it's kind of left up to the reader often. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a wonderful quality. When you went back to writing stories, the style that you wrote in, did you find it was like getting on a bike, it was kind of the same? I had to go through uh, an interim period to get the journalism out of my head and out of my style. Because uh, when you're in American mainstream journalism, especially pop journalism, even though I didn't do that many celebrity stories for people, I did real-world stories, but they always had a, a tidiness to them. Mm -hmm. And I gave it my style, and they accepted it. When you go from that to trying to use your imagination as a guide, and all these journalistic devices come in... It was very hard to get away from that. So what I did, since all those adventures I had as a journalist around the world, with amazing people or amazing places, it's an overused adjective, but they really were, they were rattling around in my head. And so I started writing my version of the story, not the published magazine story. And that came out last year as a chapbook called My Life as a Pencil which is what uh, the military called the print journalists in the Middle East when I was covering the Gulf War. I was a pencil. It annoyed me then, but my wife says, well, use it as a badge of courage or mm -hmm. be proud of it. Right. So I was a pencil. Yeah. Yeah. My photographer was a shooter. Well, pencils are pretty awesome things, really. There's a whole book about the, uh, the origin mm. of the pencil. It's a great synecdoche. The other story that was not published previously that's in this collection is Eddie. Was right. That, the right. first story. Right. Yeah. That was probably, uh, I tried to write something back in the 80s, and it never went anywhere. I didn't know where I was going. And, and then suddenly I was in Central America covering the Salvadoran uh, Civil War, the war against the Contras and the Sandinistas in, in Nicaragua, and uh, hostages in Colombia, and, and there were stories all over. You could trip on them. So then when I started reading Eddie again, I saw where I could go. I could go in many ways, but I saw what he was and what he became. And the collection is called The Wetback and Other Stories. Right. And The, the Wetback is the first story. Yes, the and, title story. And uh, Laurie called it Gentle Magic. I think that that, that, mm -hmm. that applies to this story. It's a kind of beautiful story about... The human need to connect. Right. Is that fair uh, to say? That's right. As I say in the little author's note at the beginning, most of those stories have some truth, began with something. There really was a guy found in the L.A. River dead. And I just went with that. Of course, I was aided by having read A Rose for Emily by William Faulkner. Uh -huh. The Garcia Marquez story about the... 
sailors and shipping right. Well, you get these notions from all kinds of places, and a lot of them are the writers I used to read, and or still do. So what happens is that this body is found in the L.A. River, and tell people what happens. It's found by children, right? and uh, a lot of the stories have children mm-hmm. in them. I was going to say that, yes. And there's a, a wide-eyed wonder, and they find this person who's all wet, but the L.A. River is dry. And how did that happen? Well, I don't dwell on that. It just does. And they fix him up, and he ends up being the prize, you might say, love of this old spinster in the neighborhood. Also, he is a beautiful young man. Oh, he's David. And that name, by the way, was uh, my mother doing the... uh, early 50s uh, when my father was in Korean War. He was mm-hmm. three years a prisoner. And she had a rough time yeah. never knowing if he was alive. And we had a, a little house, well, a big house, actually, and a big orchard in El Sereno. That's where we, we were living from 50 to 53. And she needed help to take care of the place. And I remember she drove down to Tijuana hired a guy, put him in the trunk, and came back with David. That's turned out uh, to be his name. And he really was uh, what we call loosely a mojado. And I don't know whatever happened to David, but back in the 50s, there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of forth, actually, uh, (laughs) during the Operation Wetback, uh, which happened in 1954. Right. And Elysian Park was a big scene of that. And that's actually a scene in my novel. So when your father's a pr- prisoner in Korea, you're mm-hmm. already over 10. You're 10 Yeah, years old I'm uh, 10 to 12. So this, like is, nine, this is scary for you 9, as well. 10, 11. Yeah, yeah. You just a, mentioned how it was for your mother, but didn't say how it was for well, you. It was for me and my two brothers. I have a younger brother and an older brother. And uh, the three of us and a woman working two jobs and... It was tough for her, and I have heard journals uh, that both of them passed away back in the 80s, and and my father, the one who was a prisoner, came back and turned out was a, a leader of a lot of escapes, all failed, and the North Koreans would torture him, and he lost all his teeth and barely survived, but he was also sort of a hero in the camp. Mm-hmm. But there was one man who was jealous of him, and uh, after returning, that man denounced him. And it was during the McCarthy period, so oh, they they tried to expel him from the army, and he had to go through a lot of testimony and Years later, I didn't know any of this. I just knew he'd go off, and they would sort of talk in whispers, and he was cleared. Was he a member of any communist organization? No, no, not was, at was all. Just, just completely? No, yeah. never. <laughs> in fact, it turned out when all the uh, other prisoners were brought in to testify, he was sort of a camp hero because he nursed a lot of people back to life, there was a very high death rate in those camps. Right. And he was in an officer's camp. And he was also the uh, squad leader, you might say, or where they put all the minorities. There. And the Chinese and the North Koreans tried to separate the minority Americans from the majority, huh? the Anglo-white mm. 
majority. So they'd put the Puerto Ricans and the Mexicans, Filipinos and the blacks yeah. in one sort of barracks-like place. But And he was their leader. And that got him in trouble because he was trying to get better conditions. And they, this one fella, the jealous one, said, you're colluding with them. You're, you're a communist mm. yourself. And mm. So he had to clear his name. And, and then afterward, he left the family. And we never saw him again. Oh. And that's when I was in New York thinking, I'm a reporter. I can tell this story. I can find him. Uh-huh. And it took me about 15 years to dig up all the facts because he never talked about his military life and because he was also a prisoner of the Nazis. Oh, my God. What a dramatic so story. The book, that book came out in 2002. It was called uh, Moving Target. Right. So it all came out and what the truth really was. But he was a very taciturn man, didn't really talk much. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. Joining us again today, Janice Littlejohn, Senior Editor at the LA Review of Books, which is a publication we hear a lot of good things about, has come back to talk to us to give us a book recommendation. Hi, Jess. Hello. It's good to be back. Good to see you. My book recommendation, I'm actually working on an interview that I did for LARB with Monica Coleman. And uh-huh. it is called Bipolar Faith. And it's an exploration of the spiritual and the madness of growing up as an African-American woman and scholar and theologian with mental disorders. She has depression and bipolar disorders. It's a really fascinating and beautifully written piece that takes her from her early years in Michigan to Atlanta and college and here to Los Angeles. It's got music and prose and highs and lows and just a wonderful exploration of a discussion we don't talk a lot about, and that's black women and mental illness. Is this a spiritual autobiography? Does she have a road to Damascus moment? Well, it is kind of a spiritual autobiography. It really does take you through her challenges growing up as a child in the church and believing in God and being challenged about who God is to her and all the stories that you grow up with about God will provide and God will save you. And there's a particular chapter where she is been raped and she talks about God coming through her body before the rape and after the rape and how dance helped her reclaim her spirituality and her faith. And so there's like these moments of using her own body where she loses her faith and she loses her hope and then she regains it again. And so there's a lot of beautiful storytelling that she does and a lot of interesting turns in her spiritual journey, which I think is a really important story to tell because we all have moments of doubt. We all, as Black people who grew up in the church and 
have to grapple with the kind of Job stories that God is here and He takes everything away from us, but yet we still stay faithful. And why do we still stay faithful? Because He's just testing us. Well, is that the argument? That's that could be an argument. That's not an argument necessarily in her story, but I think it's a very wonderful exploration and discussion of having not only mental health taken care of, but including that in your spirituality, because so often we're told, well, if your faith is good and you believe, then you will be strong and God will save you from whatever torment Mm -hmm. that you Mm -hmm. have. But just like we go to the doctor for a cold or for the flu or for cancer, our mental health is a part of our holistic, our whole body needs, and each needs their own care at a certain time, and and we need to be open to protecting that. Oh, could you just, uh, again, say the name of the book and the author? It's Monica Coleman, and it's Bipolar Faith. Sounds great. I'm going to get it. Yeah. It's a beautifully written piece. I really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming back. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now we're going to return to our interview with Ron Arias. Your journalism career took you to a lot of places, and early on you were in Buenos Aires, mm-hmm. working for an Argentinian oh, paper. Yeah. Back in 1962. 62, okay. Well, I dropped out of Berkeley. I loved my classes, but I didn't know anything about the world, and I wanted to see the world. And I answered an ad about uh, a press scholarship that would support me for a year in Buenos Aires, working for the Buenos Aires Herald. And so I applied, and I got it. And I was down there covering everything, not just riots in the streets, but interviewing people like... uh, Astor Piazzolla, the yeah. bandionista. The guy that was right at that moment kind of transforming right. the tango. The right? tango, exactly. Yeah. And that's where I also met Hunter Thompson for a night. I had to show him around to the Buenos Aires Jazz Club life. and uh-huh. What else? Well, I did a lot then. For a 20-year-old dropout, <laughs> it was but then you went back to school in... In Buenos Aires. That was one of the stipulations of the uh, scholarship. Oh, I see. I had to go attend a college class. So I signed up. I just wanted to report work and see the world, right? Mm-hmm. But I had to do this thing about the classroom. And I had just fled Berkeley, and it was a very tough uh, bunch of years there. Yeah. So I signed up for the only class I saw that was in English because I thought, well, my Spanish is okay, but it's not up to their university level. Yeah, right. And this course, it's all given in English. I didn't even look at who the professor was. And so slackered that I was, I got there the first day of class. And then I see this little old blind guy walk in, guided by a young woman. And uh, he got up there and introduced himself, and and it was later I got to know, I actually knew who Jorge Luis Borges was, mm-hmm. because I had taken some literature courses in Berkeley, and Latin American literature, and he had won every prize except the Nobel Prize. Yeah. 
I was shocked, and then suddenly he starts speaking in Middle English, <laughs> which no one understood. It of sounded course. sort of, uh, I don't know, it's a cross between Gaelic and uh, Scandinavian language. And, mm. and for the semester or many weeks, I had to struggle through that class, <laughs> and it was worse than anything <laughs> in <hilarious>. Spanish. <laughs> right. And so what was he like? <clears throat> Oh, he was a complete cerebral man who could recite 20 minutes at a time in a... what Chaucer. Yeah, yeah. Chaucer, Beowulf. Mm -hmm. uh, it was incredible. And he was an Encyclopedia Britannica all in one head. Yeah. He, could, he had references to everything. and But always very kindly and good to the students and... One of the things that has always struck me about him is the sense of humor in those pieces. Was he, did yeah. he have that kind of dry yeah. humor? Yeah, he did have a wit about him, and not mean, because I've been with professors who, you know, they cut you at the knees <laughs> if they can. And no, he was always very, uh, well, first of all, he couldn't see you. He was right, just right, up there right. at the lectern, and you it were a lot of different voices to him. So we could do a lot of head turning and roaming around, and uh, I remember I, I made friends. Let's say, and I wasn't the best student, but what I can say is that it got me to read him more and more closely. When you have a blind teacher, that's that's cause for bad behavior in the classroom. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, you're in college. You're not in, yeah. in second grade, but, right? But still. <laughs> I have a question about the journalism part of your career, particularly after you went to people. Did you worry that you were forsaking your art for worldly matters? Was that a concern, or did you no. just embrace it? No, I think, in fact, it was something I kind of was encouraged to believe in by, of all people, Ernest Hemingway. Mm -hmm. I was mm. uh, backpacking around Spain back in 1959. I had finished high school. I was living in Germany because my father was stationed there, and I just went hitchhiking, and I ended up in Pamplona and meeting Hemingway, and he asked me to sit down to drink wine with him, and one of the things he did say is he encouraged me to just see everything and do everything. And so Ernest Hemingway is the reason you dropped out of Berkeley? Kind of. Mm -hmm. it, it probably was, because uh, you read his life, every young guy wants to do what he did. and mm -hmm. I mean, he became larger than even his works. And even his waist. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, did he then punch you out? No, no. Oh. He, he uh, wasn't uh, nasty to me. He could be to others. But he was actually uh, very... Um, curious about who I was and where I went and what I read and where was I going. And he did most of the talking and they were questions. He was a reporter. And mm -hmm. I yeah, think right. looking, maybe looking for material, I, I'm not sure, but I wrote a piece for People Magazine about that. Yeah, I, I read that just the other day. My favorite Hemingway book is In Our Time, where mm -hmm. he actually has some snippets from his journalism strewn through the yeah. text, these little vignettes that are in between the chapters. I just, I love those pieces. Yeah. Um, Some of my favorites, yeah. yeah well, that's his earliest book. Yeah, it's his first book. Yeah. His best, it's I really think. Yeah. Reporting for the Toronto Globe, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I see a little bit of that kind of Hemingway in your stories in this collection. He also has a lot of kids. Yeah. Kid, kid eye views in those first stories. Yeah. 
the Nick Adams stories. And he also has a kind of sense, like these stories, that they're not classic middle, beginning, middle, end mm. stories, right? Mm. They're, they're slice, slices yeah. more than they are kind of neat, tidy narratives. Right. I did pick up a lot of uh, that, uh, somebody called my writing distilled. Mm. But I work hard on them, and most people don't realize how good writing or writing that conveys emotion has to be take a lot of attention. And speaking of distilled, how much did you drink with? with <laughs> no, it was just I had one glass okay. of red, and <laughs> that was it. Uh-huh. I mean, I was what at that time I was seventeen, and it was all new to me, and yeah, the music going around and. I wrote a longer version of that in this little pencil book, My Life is a Pencil, because uh, there's much more to it than that meeting Hemingway. But. Well, you are sometimes listed as uh, an important figure in what they used to call and perhaps still call the Chicano mm-hmm. uh, literary movement. Mm-hmm. Is that designation less important now than it used to be? What does it mean to you Yeah, today? I think it's less important. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many more writers, and uh, there are more uh, influences, styles. It's English-dominant. It's all Spanish. It's translated. It's uh, Spanglish. It's, mm-hmm. And I never gave much thought of the, to the whole Chicano label, even back in the 70s when people were marching and there were brown berets mm-hmm. protesting one thing or another and and because I had seen a, the greater Latin American picture it wasn't just this little barrio next to LA River right mm-hmm. and yet all those people and that's probably my motivation for going to Latin America is to find out more about myself and my these so-called my people mm-hmm. you might say but there was such a variety and and there still is. My wife and I just love traveling in Latin America if we can, because she speaks Spanish too. Just to see all the cross currents and I'm against all labels. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, it's all about story. And but if people want to, it's mostly academics and uh, Madison Avenue people, big publishers. Everybody wants categories, and right. that's fine. Right. It's more expedient. Right. Right. But you didn't feel you, you, that you were part of the movimiento. No. no. I mean, you know, I was there. I taught in San Bernardino Valley College. I taught English there because they needed a token, a couple token Chicanos or Mexican-Americans. And, you know, I fit the bill. Mm-hmm. But I never intended to teach. I liked it for a while, but then I had to get back to writing. Mm-hmm. One, one last thing. I teach at UC Riverside, mm-hmm. as you know, and um, of course, everything is named after Thomas Rivera, um, yeah. the library. Uh, there's a chair who my, yeah. my friend Juan Felipe Herrera yeah. was in for uh, years. So he's still an important figure. He was the first, he was chancellor at yeah, the Riverside yeah. and also a fiction writer. Mm. And you say a friend of yours. Yes, absolutely. A very good friend and very sweet man. And uh, we met at the first, uh, what they called the uh, gathering of not just Mexican or Chicano, but uh, a Latino. Now the mm-hmm. word is Latino or mm-hmm. Hispanic writers, literary writers, poets mostly, but prose writers too, at a thing called the Floricanto at right. uh, USC mm-hmm. back in the 70s. And I read a little short story, 
and Tomas read a short story of his, and we got to be friends then. And then when I published my novel, he, well, before, he read the manuscript and wrote the little first introduction to it. And then when he got to Riverside and I was in San Bernardino, we became friends, social friends, and and I just admire his stories, too. I like them. And also my colleague, Elihud Martinez. Right, right. Got to be friends with him, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. The book is The Wetback and Other Stories. Ron Arias, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. Longer versions of our interviews with our guests are available on our website, thelareviewofbooks.org. Also, iTunes, Stitcher, and all other podcast purveyors and platforms. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 